Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome back to the Theater Podcast, intimate personal conversations with the industry's biggest names. Today's guest is no different. It is two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Lynn Nottage. She is a lady who never stops. She is always out to learn something new, do something new. She just finished up Clyde's on Broadway, just opened Intimate Apparel, and also just opened MJ the Musical, back-to-back nights. Incredible how she just doesn't seem to sleep. But <laughs> amazing story about how she got into the profession of writing, what made her want to do this and get into this creative endeavor. So such an exciting story. Can't wait to share it with you. Find me online on Instagram and Twitter, theater underscore podcast. Leave a rating and a review. Even on Spotify now, you can leave a rating. Support the podcast via ttp.fm slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Those proceeds go to helping keep transcriptions going. And everybody now, please enjoy this episode with Lynn Nottage. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Here you go. One, two, three. Today's guest is a two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright and, by the way, the first woman to win the category twice and, note, still the only woman to win it twice. She's a screenwriter, a Tony nominee, a producer, the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant Fellowship, and 
Overall, just one of the busiest people I know as of late with three shows running in one stage or another. Clyde's Intimate Apparel, and most recently to open MJ the Musical. She's an activist working with the Art for Justice Fund, among others. She's also an associate professor at the theater department at the Columbia School of the Arts. Holy crap, Lynn Nottage, welcome to the Theater Podcast. Thank you so much. So you're standing, you're awake. I cannot, I, I, I saw you literally days ago. Uh, for your most recent opening. And then the week before, Intimate Apparel opened on January 27th. How are you How are you going right now? Actually, Intimate Apparel opened on the 31st and MJ on the 1st. So the openings were back to back. Oh, we got pushed. Oh, I read online it was the 27th. So yeah, back to back days. No, it was the 31st. Back to back openings. Um, I was describing to someone, it's the equivalent of running like the triathlon version of theater. Um, I've been training all of my life to have a play, a musical, and an opera all at once. And there's such different, there's such different shows about such different content and such different styles. And I think that speaks to to who you are as a person, right? You are such a, a, a well-rounded person and you are you don't stick to one thing. And I don't know um, if you're able to in a good way, right? Like speaking personally for myself, I if I get one, if I do one thing over and over again or I stick to one thing, I get super bored with that one thing. But I appreciate that one thing if I've got 10 other things distracting me. Yeah, well, I guess I've always have had wanderlust and so that continues and translates to my imagination. I des describe myself as nomadic, that once I finish, I like to pick up and go someplace completely different. And I also think that having three shows that are distinctly different has been an advantage in this moment because I can leave and then go into a completely different landscape and sort of reinvigorate myself. And then when I get tired, pick up and go into a, another landscape. And so it's been fun to travel through, you know, these different theatrical spaces. Well, so take me back to, to Little Lynn. When did you first start uh, getting into performing and realizing that theater was for you? Because we're going to get into this. You not only graduated from Brown, you also graduated from the Yale School of Drama. So like, Two, two of the hardest schools that you, <laughs> you went to. But how did you even get there? Where was the beginning for you when you were like, you know what, I'm going to pick up a pen or a typewriter or a computer, whatever it was, and start putting your thoughts down? I, I guess my very first encounters with dr drama were in the kitchen in my house. Um, my, um, my mother always had a large circle of friends. And so at any given moment, if you came into our kitchen, to be this group of women sitting around this orange from Michael table that we had and drinking from a jug of Mandavi wine. You know, my mother was like an early wine lover before it became trendy. Loved <laughs> <laughs> her red wine. And the women, including my grandmother, who was a great raconteur, would just sit and tell stories. And it was one of my favorite parts of the day. Like after I finished my homework, I could come and sit and just listen to that storytelling. But also as a young person, I began writing skits for my brother and myself that we would perform um, for my mother's friends because we wanted to get in on the action. So I think that unbeknownst to me, I was a playwright very early on. And it didn't really become formalized until I got to high school when I wrote my first play. And I don't even know why I wrote that play, but I did. 
<laughs> right when I was in a, a, a drama class. In high school, I was, my peers, right, were like, where are we going to go out tonight and get some beer, right? Like North Carolina. So that's where the accent comes from. But <laughs> in high school, you were sitting down and writing plays which is incredible to me because, again, the high school where I came from, there was just nobody like that around there. Um, and and were, did you incur? Did you see the the need for for this yourself to pursue it uh, in higher education to go to college for it, or did somebody else at one point say like, "Yo, you've got some real talent. You need um, to go this way." Well, you know, I I, I grew up in New York City. Um, I went to the High School of Music and Art, which is now known as LaGuardia, and so I was always around people who wanted to make their lives in the performing arts. So I wasn't an anomaly in that space. It, you know, there, I was, I was in school every day with people who were immensely talented and many who are much more talented than me. But when I went to college, I wasn't really thinking of theater as a, a livelihood. I was a black woman and there weren't a lot of role models for me out there. And so it was something that I did because I love to do it. I love to write plays and then see people perform it, but there was no sense that it was going to become a career. But when I got to Brown, I just continued, continued it. And it was really there that I discovered that I had a knack for playwriting when I was in playwriting courses. And I had the encouragement of a professor named George Bass, who ran something called the Rights and Reasons Theater, which was the Black Theater space in Providence, Rhode Island. And he just nurtured my voice and encouraged me. And he was the only one at the time doing that. And then my senior year, I had the good fortune to take a course with playwright Paula Vogel, who at the time was a young woman trying mm -hmm. to, on in her own right, negotiate you know, the theatrical landscape. And she was literally the very first living female playwright that I encountered. You know, of course, I'd read the work of um, Lorraine Hansberry, I'd read Intasaki Shange, but I hadn't, you know, Lorraine Hansberry was dead long before, um, I, I think I was born, no, she, I think she died just around. And Intasaki Shange um, was this sort of distant, remote um, figure that I, um, I um, admired, but I didn't know. And so Paula Vogel was like a living, breathing female playwright who I could talk to about the craft. And she said, I think you can do this. And she's the one who encouraged me to apply to the Yale School of Drama, um, which I had no intention of doing. And then I got in and, and I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> maybe I should go. What did you think you were going to do if you hadn't gotten in? Did you have another um, path? Yeah, I mean... I, I did have another path, like throughout high school and college, I worked for um, two newspapers. One was the Phoenix that was in Brooklyn, New York, which was this little local newspaper that had this very scrappy editor who sort of fashioned himself like an old newsroom guy. He smoked a cigar and wore suspenders and he'd yell at us and we'd type on, on typewriters. And he, <laughs> you know, for one, whatever reason, he liked me and then he hired me to work at his other newspaper, which was The Villager which was this little newspaper in, in, in East Village that covered local news. But what they did a lot was um, um, reviews of, of art galleries and, and plays. And so it was just an interesting assortment of people who worked there. And so I always knew that I was going to write in some way. And if I didn't become a playwright, I'd probably be a journalist. The same time that I'd gotten into Yale School of Drama, I'd also gotten into the Columbia School of Journalism. So I was really um, at that crossroads. Like, do I go to take this path or do I take that path? 
Oh, that's so cool. So there's a, a multiverse version of you that is this highly successful journalist and has her own talk show and <laughs> obviously has won a bazillion daytime Emmys because why would you not? Yeah, yeah, yeah there's definitely another, you know, there's another version of Lynn, you know, in that alternative universe. I think that's funny. And I actually don't put it past you to to try that at some point either, because I don't think that you're one of those people. You were just saying that that you love to to do so many different things. And aside from the writing, aside from from theater, you know, you're you're teaching too. So you're yeah. you're giving back. And I think I, I wanna I called out um, I want to call out how important that is because of exactly what you said earlier is that when you were coming up through your education, you didn't have any female living female playwrights to interact with let alone playwrights of color and i think that's incredibly important especially right now well i think that's one of the reasons i began teaching is because i think mentorships are really important nurturing is really important you know while there are theater colleagues who certainly were there for me from the very beginning of my career um what i didn't have is someone who was absolutely a hundred percent invested in my success. And that's what I try and do with my students is like, I am there for them. I'll read drafts of their play. I'll write recommendations. I'll introduce them to people in this industry, you know, because it's, it's, it's difficult. I mean, writing for theater is not for the faint hearted and any help that you can get is absolutely appreciated. And I just, in particular for my students of color, because I know how difficult it's been is that I'm there to help them. And that I, I think that takes uh, takes us to the the activism side of things as well, because working with um, uh, Art for Justice, among a couple other foundations that you work with, so Art for Justice is uh, tell well, tell us about that for for well, those. Art for Justice, you know, yeah. um, the the way we came about working with Art for Justice is very specifically through my play, play Clyde's, which is. Um, about a group of formerly incarcerated people who work in this sandwich shop, which was, which is kind of like limbo, and they, they, you know, they're under the thumb of this very tough woman named Clyde who runs it, who really is is um, their major obstacle to success. Every time they feel good, she's there to remind them, you know, that they're 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 formerly incarcerated, and the world is not going to accept them. And so the play is about people who are in this liminal space, who are trapped in limbo, just trying to use the tools in front of them to rebuild their lives and reach for redemption and find joy. You know, so it's an optimistic play. And we teamed up with Art for Justice, which is a not-for-profit that's really invested in figuring out how art can be used to help people who are incarcerated and for people for, formerly incarcerated tell their stories and sort of transcend their circumstances. And so it felt like a really nice alignment between what the play is about and what the mission of that organization is. And we were able to, um, through you know, their generosity, create um, opportunities for um, some formerly incarcerated to be interns at, at the theater. So we created three internships, you know, one front of the house you know, um, one, you know, back, backstage and another one, um, someone got to observe us actually um, rehearsing the show. And so we were really excited to bring on people who wouldn't necessarily think about theater as a possibility when they get, get, got out. We also, through Art for Justice, were, were able to um, 
with the support of um, Hadi Kamara, who's who's the executive director of Second Stage, um, create a job fair um, on Broadway, which hopefully will happen. So the opportunity will be for people who are formerly incarcerated to um, look at opportunities in the Broadway industry, which is oh, very exciting. Which so is, amazing. Think, yes, it's. I think it's very cool. And then the thing that we were also very, very excited about, because we are streaming, or we streamed because the, the show has already happened, is that we had the opportunity to stream the play in Rikers Island and then do um, a conversation and workshop with um, guys who were who were inside. Wow. And, yeah. But so I I God, Rikers, right? There's so much controversy surrounding uh Rikers and just the incarceration system in general, but in New York specifically, that <laughs> we don't we don't have time to get into that. But uh, I mean, where can where can people who are listening now, uh, this, let's do a quick plug for Art for Justice. So if we want to donate, if we want to get involved, where can we go? Yeah, yeah they have a website. So you can go to Art for Justice um, and, and spend some time engaging with what they do. And a lot of the programs are super cool. And um, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful foundation. So when you were researching Clyde, did I read this right? That you, you went specifically to Reading, Pennsylvania? Yeah, well, Clyde's... Um, really comes out of the research that I did when I was working on another play called Sweat. Sweat, um, that's what it was. Yes, yes. Um, a, a Sweat, where I got to Reading, Pennsylvania, and was really interested in Which, of how, course, got you a Pulitzer and a Tony Dom. <laughs> yeah, I, I was really interested in, in how um, sort of the industrialization, the economic do- downturn was reshaping the American narrative. And when I was there... Um, I interviewed as many people as possible and what I discovered in the town because it had been once been this industrial powerhouse and that people coming out of prison were attracted to the city because they could get off the bus and like in a second find a well-paying job. And once the economic downturn occurred, um, people continued to come to Reading, but there was no work. And so it became a city that had a lot of... um, social services for the formerly incarcerated. And as a result, many of the people who I interviewed were formerly incarcerated who had these incredible stories. And one person in particular was a guy named Dr. Will, who, while he was um, in prison, got his PhD in psychology. And when he came back to Reading, Pennsylvania, because that's where he was, he decided that he really wanted to give back. And he started like the first green market in downtown Reading and had created this, uh, this economic empowerment zone for um, business people and entrepreneurs of color and just was like this ray of sunshine. And, you know, whenever I went down there, I used the opportunity to talk with him and my play Clyde's really comes out of some of those conversations. There's a character in the play called Montrellis who is like the sensei and the teacher and who's really deeply invested in mindfulness. He's described as like the Buddha from the hood who just wants to help these young people who are looking at the landscape and seeing no possibility, find possibility. And Dr. Will was that person. It sounds like the the work you do and you put into putting together a play or putting together a show is, is almost like you're filming a documentary. You're, you're figuring out the story you want to tell. You're interviewing the people. You're putting together all these characters and these narratives. Is, is that, so is that something that came 
inherently uh, just because of who you are and you want to tell an accurate representation instead of complete fantasy? Or did that come through the years of, of higher education? Um, I, I think that, yes, I'm really interested in some documentary techniques in terms of interviewing people, but um, everything that I create is fiction. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's definitely, it's not like verbatim theater. It's not what Anna DeVere Smith does or the civilians do in which they really are taking those interviews and putting them on the stage and keeping sort of the language and the impulses of those people very present in their performances. I mean, what I do is slightly different and I wouldn't call it documentary theater, but certainly my approach when I'm interviewing people is, 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 um, owes something to the doc- documentary form. My husband, Tony Gerber, is a documentary filmmaker. And when we f- first were doing research for Ruined, he was really interest- instrumental in helping me figure out, well, how do I shape these questions? And how do I ask difficult, difficult questions? And how do I um, allow the person who's being interviewed to understand that I have empathy? And so I leaned on him for some of those techniques. That, that again leads me to my next thought of of how and why you choose to write about what you write about because there's you mentioned a couple of the people that are like putting interviews on stage directly you're creating fiction but it's still grounded in realism and then you want to take an extreme right there's the sci-fi there's there's time travel like George Lucas could not go to space and research uh, uh, intergalactic war by interviewing a Sith Lord, right? Like right. this stuff's completely made up, and uh, he's not a dialogue writer. Let, let's let's call him what he is. Well, you know, he's not a dialogue writer. <laughs> so so then, where do you where where do you decide to spend your time? Because, like you said, you've got you've got Clyde's. Or you, Clyde's just closed, but you had Clyde's MJ, which is a complete beast in and of its own, and Intimate Apparel, which is currently playing now at Lincoln Center. And uh, Intimate Apparel is a revival, but it what well, now it's an opera. Yeah, it's not a revival because this is the first time the opera is being done. Well, it's right, the right. Play, so, I mean, the, it's, it's 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 like a completely different animal than the play. So did you approach, okay, okay, before I get to the next question of how did you approach the opera, we'll go back to the original question then. Where do you decide where, where you're going to spend your time today, tomorrow, next week? Um, you know, I mean, that, that's, that's a great question and I often get asked, you know, well, how do you find your way into a play? I mean, sometimes it's a nagging question that I have at some, you know, in the case of Ruined, um, I was very interested in doing a modern adaptation of Bertolt Brecht's Mother Courage set in the Congo because there was that protracted war that was happening in, you know, in, in Central Africa. And when I began doing my research about what was happening to women, I found that there was no information. I'm like, no one's doing, no one's asking the questions that I'm, I'm asking. And so I had to get on a plane with the director and my husband and go to East Africa and find women who were fleeing that conflict and ask them, well, what's happening in your lives and what's going on. And, um, and the play really is a response to the answers that they gave me. And the same was true for sweat. Um, when I was looking at the landscape and find, trying to figure out, you know, why is the American narrative so corrupted and what is going on in this moment? 
um, in American, um, in, you know, in the American timeline. And I found that some of the questions I had were not being answered by the periodicals that I looked to. And so I had to do that research. And so I think for me, a lot of times it's, you know, the kind of immersive research that I did comes out of questions that I need on a very personal level to be answered, that it's led by my curiosity and, and my need to know. Huh. Wow. Okay. So then that, I, I want to make the parallel there to take this to intimate apparel because the core of intimate apparel came from uh, a photograph of your grandmother that you found I, while cleaning out her her place after she had passed, right? No, she hadn't passed. She she had developed um, senile dementia. Oh yeah. So tell so tell that story so our listeners know, um, and then we can and then we'll get into intimate apparel because I think I find the, the story amazingly fascinating. Um, I'm sure. I mean, the, the story came about my mother had Lou Gehrig's disease, um, which she developed at a rather young age. And, you know, the, it progressed very quickly. And she died before I had the opportunity really to ask a lot of questions that I had about the family. And just as she was dying, my grandmother was developing senile dementia. And they were really the last matriarchs in, in my family who I could go to, to find out about some of my ancestors and my relatives. And um, I was left with this enormous hole. And while I was cleaning out my grandmother's house when we were moving her into my brother's home, I found this Family Circle magazine because unbeknownst to me, she hid all of the family photographs and magazines. And I'd thrown out most of them before I discovered this, unfortunately. Oh, and no. I found this one photograph of my grandmother when she was very young and her sister and this other woman who was clearly their mother. And it was the first time I'd ever seen a picture of my great grandmother. And in that moment, I realized that there was no one who I could ask about her. I knew that she was a seamstress. I knew that she'd come to New York City at the turn of century. But beyond that, there was no information. So in Intimate Apparel, like many of my plays came about um, because I had these questions that needed to be answered. And I went to the New York Public Library to try and figure out how a woman, you know, a black woman at 18 years old who arrived in New York City um, at the beginning of the 20th century would have negotiated that space. You know, where would she have lived and how would she have made her living as a seamstress? And Intimate Apparel was my reimagining of my great-grandmother's life. Wow. Yeah, so the play is set in, in 1905 and... It tells the story. I didn't realize it was a reimagining of your great grandmother's life. I, I want to go back and see it again now, knowing that specific fact. But you know, it, I I think it's wonderful how it's it's telling the story of this young woman. Again, this is like before any type of modern communication technology, right? So you're writing letters with this person and then agree to marry them without ever meeting them, and that was That's not on which is a true story. Yeah, it was not. It was not uncommon. So, it's it's telling it's telling these untold stories that's com, that are completely. I want to. I I assume are normal of a certain type, a certain certain um, you know, group of people at a certain time in in our culture uh, that was essentially uninteresting to the people who were keeping the records. So that's why there's yeah. just nothing about them. There's nothing about them. I mean, it's one of the things that we have to engage in is this historic fabulations as black women because we were so thoroughly sort of expunged from the archive. Even when I was doing my research, it was fascinating 
how difficult it was to reconstruct the life of an ordinary, extraordinary woman like Esther. You know, there were not books being written about her. Um, and even in the new newspaper, there were very few articles that were being written about her. And so it almost was, you almost had to approach the ar ar archive like a forensic scientist and piece together the little tiny bits of clues to figure out, you know, who this person was. And, and there was no, there was no help either, or very little help, I suspect, for, for, for not only women in that time period, but women of color in that time period, for to to support them through establishing finding a job and getting support, and if there are husband troubles, if there's alcohol abuse going on, like that, that all seemed very very normal. But I say that with the through the lens of the stories that I've been told, which I completely admit have mostly been written by white men. Right. Well, it's, I mean, Esther was, was living in a patriarchal racist culture in which she was completely devalued. And so there was no one invested in telling her story other than herself. And she didn't have the tools to do it. And she literally could not read or write. She couldn't read or write. And so, so it was very difficult for her um, to, to, to tell her, to, to tell her story, and and I love the dichotomy between the the two people, the two other, the secondary characters in Intimate Apparel through which Esther is interacting with, um, who do help her do the reading and the writing, but they're completely on opposite ends of the of the social spectrum. You have a, a prostitute on one end and a super rich white lady on the other end, so you've got this this person who is, like you said, just completely normal on the time and uninteresting to the people doing the record keeping, who's just trying to find their way through life and has this amazing skill set that can't get any support. It's, it's phenomenal to me how, how you brought this to stage. Oh, well, well, thank you. I mean, one of the things that fascinated me about the character of Esther is because of her relative in invisibility, she acts access to many places that folks wouldn't, you know, whether it be sort of Fifth Avenue, home of a very wealthy white woman, or Badello, um, um, where prostitutes are uh, applying their trade. She, she could go into these worlds and have these relationships that one might think were impossible. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the episode. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, forward, prohibited by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So, you wrote Intimate Apparel originally as a play, and then where did the impetus come for to to recreate it? We won't call it a revival. We've made that clear. Not a revival. It's, not a revival. it's a brand new show. It's, it's a brand, brand new, new opera, show. original yes. opera. So did yes. you did you go back to I guess where did the idea come from to do this? And then did you start from the original script or did you just like write out point plot points and start over completely? Because obviously we can't sing the entire script. But sure. I mean, Intimate Peril really came about um, via Ricky Ian Gordon, who's the our fabulous composer. He, I had encountered his music, and he approached me and said, "You know, I love your work. Would you be interested in writing opera?" And I said, "Yes, of course." And for about two years, we spent time trying to figure out what story we wanted to to tell, and we were engaging with different kinds of texts. And at some point, he said, "You know, what I really want to do is." make your play Intimate Apparel into opera. And my response is that that's really what I want to do. And we had sort of circled that for all this time. We lost like two years um, engaged with other things. And um, we began working on it. And I was a complete and absolute neophyte. I love opera. I've gone to the opera for many, many years, but I've never written a libretto. And so I had to lean very, very heavily on Ricky, um, to help me navigate through that space. And my first impulse was to rewrite the play. And my second impulse was to rewrite the play. And finally, Ricky said to me, and you know, he sat me down and he's like, you're not trusting me as a collaborator, is that you want to maintain absolute control. And when you're writing an opera, you really have to surrender some of that control to the, um, the composer because they're the ones who are doing 60% of the work. In a play, if you want to say, I love you, you have to say it. You know, you have to speak those words. And Ricky's like, I can do that with music. Um, and so, like, allow me to do some of the storytelling. And that is what I did is I went back and, like, stripped away 50% of the play and let him be the collaborator and fill in those blank spaces. That is incredible. Okay, so then you're going through, are, are you, are you, starting with the original dialogue that you wrote or is it just here here are the points we need to hit like an outline and writing dialogue to fit in there and hoping that ricky can turn it into music you're nodding your head yes yes <laughs> um well the an answer to your question is yes and no when we sat down to um work on the pro project one of the things that we decided to do um, was to expand the world. And 
Yeah, and it was to expand the world because the conceit of the play um, was very specific. Intimate apparel is um, is designed so that you have two characters who are always in conversation over a bed. And I was interested in the way in which that bed transforms the nature of those interactions. And what we decided to do is because we were putting it on a different stage is is to scale it up is that we could invite other people into the world we could um we could take folks to the lower east side we could take people into the saloon and the bordello um we could have mrs van buren who's the wealthy um woman on fifth avenue have her maids helping her get dressed and so the opera is slightly more expansive than the play itself it's populated by more people and you've got this opera, you've got Clyde's, which is a straight play, and then you've also got MJ, which is this big budget, powerhouse, phenomenal musical telling the story of this cultural icon that has literally changed the world. And so shifting into that mode then for for writing the book for for MJ was that uh, did that involve sort of the same amount of research, the same, um, uh, I mean, there's tons and tons of data on, and, and, you know, data points on Michael Jackson, of course, it's not something, it's not a story that did not get told. So how did you start with that one? You know, it's interesting you say it's not a story that has not been told, but there is a lot in this story that hasn't been told. I think that one of the things that we decide to hyper focus on is his creativity, because I think that so much about Michael Jackson is his eccentricities and, you know, all of the noise around his music. And we decided that we were going to micro focus on, you know, what does it mean to build one of the biggest concerts that the world had ever seen in 1992? And how does he select those songs that go in that concert? Because he had this enormous catalog. Um, and so we micro focused and, and I just want also want to point out that, while all of these um, plays, musicals, and operas are really different, there is a thread that ties them together is that they're fundamentally about creativity and self-actualization. You know, whether it be Clyde's or Intimate Apparel or MJ, it's all people who at their core are in some form an artist and who are trying to figure out how do I tell my story through um, what I make. Interesting. So why is, is that conscious on your end to, to pick out these characters and these stories that, uh, that, that are of the similar ilk like this? I, you know, I, I don't think it, it was conscious, but I think the fact that I was developing all these things at the same time <laughs> and probably asking questions myself about the nature of my creative practice and um, that somehow that filtered to, into each of the pieces. I mean, Intimate Apparel, granted, was written many years years ago, but I was revisiting it um, when I was writing the other things and was deeply invested in telling the story of someone who is an artist, but is not necessarily viewed in that way. I love the story of, of MJ, how it's presented, um, how you guys did it, because it, it, like you said, it, it is very hyper-focused on this one point in time and uses opportunities of um, 
I guess the moments in the show to flash back and show a, little, a lot of history. So, like you said, I guess it is something a story about Michael Jackson that hasn't been told as much as uh, uh, as other things, I guess, or focused on other things. So, where did you go to find the knowledge? The and, and I mean, did you do the interviews? Did you do traveling to to find this information about his past, his personal past that obviously he didn't want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, it was really fortunate to be able to have access to people who had toured with Michael Jackson, people who had written some of the songs that he sang, people who worked worked with him in other capacities. I had um, access to some of his own personal archival materials where he jot down his thoughts and many of the most of the language that you hear him speak in the musical actually are things that he said or things that he felt because I was trying to figure out, well, how do you find his voice and find a voice that people don't aren't often used to hearing. And so I took a lot of that from, from his own archive. Wow. That's, I'm imagining that moment where someone handed you like this, this journal handwritten by Michael Jackson and you get to hold it in your hands for the first time and open it up and like, holy crap, holy crap, like this guy who has sold hundreds of millions of records and influenced the world and changed our music and changed our life and our culture, like his, his thoughts are literally in my hands right now. Yeah, I mean, it was incredible. It was like pulling back the curtain and seeing, you know, who's pulling the strings. And one of the things that was really fascinating about engaging with that archive was just how intentional he was in everything that he did. You know, we like to think, you know, that he was... He wasn't in full control, but he, he he very much was, which I find infinitely fascinating. <laughs> People are going to come to see MJ with any number of different expectations or thoughts on how the story should be told or what should be talked about. So what's the big thing? Is there one thing that you hope people will walk away from after seeing the show and remember? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that one of the theses of the musical is um you know what what does it what is the cost of creativity and want people really to sort of think about how the music was made and why the music was made because i think it's so easy you know just to sort of bop to a song without listening to lyrics and without really considering that song in its totality and so hopefully people will re-engage with the music on a deeper level as you started to to research Michael and look at his his thoughts, uh, literally handwritten thoughts, were you able to go back and re-listen to songs that that you've listened to previously in your life and completely with a new lens and see things and realize things you'd never seen before? Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was fascinating because I listened to every single song that Michael Jackson has ever touched, <laughs> and. Um, I think what's fascinating is like why he, you know, selected to put certain songs on an album and what he was feeling in, in moments and why he, you know, he leaned into certain kind of vocal techniques and all of those things that we don't consider, you know, what was he thinking when he was making Thriller versus Off the Wall, you know, and Off the Wall was really an album of liberation when he was self-actualizing and trying to figure out who he, who he was as an independent artist, sort of separate from the Jackson Five and the Jacksons that had really defined his career up until that point. And then, 
um, as he was beginning to find his voice and take more ownership and moving into Dangerous, in which he produced and wrote um, much more of than his previous albums. And so just following his trajectory as a human being through the songs and the music he chose to make. Such a lovely, a lovely story that is lying underneath this idea that everyone's got. And I mean, I think it just speaks to the fact that this was obviously long before social media. Um, but what you see on the surface is pretty much most of the time never who a person really is, or you don't understand the yes. motivation. You're not going to, you know, in a, in a tweet in 250 characters, I'm not going to tweet and then follow up with why I'm tweeting about it. That just, that's not how well, some people do. <laughs> Some people do, you know, some people are like live out loud on Twitter. (laughs) I guess, I guess, I don't know. That's not, not for me. And, oh, you know what? This is completely unrelated or or unrelated to theater, but it drives me insane when people do those, those uh, cryptic tweets where it's, they don't say why they don't give any context. It's just like, send me a, send me thoughts and prayers today. I'm like, well, so then... I know, it's just really scary. <laughs> I was like, what, did, did something happen? Are we supposed to care a little or a lot? Or do you do you want... How much attention do you need right now? It's I'm just like, just... I'm all about being direct. It, but I understand. I understand that everybody's this you way. Know, it's funny. You know, it's funny because I tweeted out one of those cryptic um, tweets once without really thinking. I mean... Um, I can't even remember what I was doing, uh, but I, I said something like, wish me luck. You know, this is going to be really difficult. And I got all these people like, we're, we're praying for you. <laughs> you know, we hope you're okay. And I'm like, what? Because <laughs> whatever no. I was doing was very banal. It's like, I'm just going to the gym for the first time in a month. That's all I I'm think doing. It was something... I think it was something as simple as that, which I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Wish and then like, I had to reassure people, it's like, I'm okay, I'm fine, it's not a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's wrap that up with... That taught me a lesson about Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's wrap up with three standard closing questions that I ask everybody to wrap up the podcast. The first one, just very simply, is what motivates you? Um, I, I guess I'm, I'm motivated by curiosity. Mm. Um. I'm yeah. It's like I I I just as I get older, I remain sort of more interested in in the world and figuring out you know the the hows and the whys. And then, when you hit forty, speaking from personal experience, the 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 death of of life starts hanging over me. And I'm like, okay, now I gotta, I gotta learn more because I feel like I'm running out of time already, and I want to learn as much as I can in as short amount of time as I can. And it's scary. And life accelerates when you hit like forty; it just gets faster and faster. Those years, like, so take take every moment <laughs> as it comes, man. Every moment, all those questions you got to get them answered immediately. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the next question then: What advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now, starting out down a similar path? Oh, I mean, that's a, a, a great question. I, I think that the thing that I would tell my younger self is to invest in my own voice and don't let anyone sort of push you in directions that don't feel right for you. 
Hmm. Is that what you would tell people who are also starting out trying to be writers or playwrights or screenwriters? Yeah, ab yeah, absolutely. I, I think that it's it's. I, I wish when I was the younger me had been more confident and um, had not allowed so many voices to enter my creative process. And um, I feel that I would have arrived sooner at the destination that I wanted to get to, but instead I allowed people to place all of these obstacles, which were unnecessary opinions in my way. And so it took me a lot of longer to find out um, or I shouldn't say find out, to figure out how to shape my own story in ways that felt good to me. Beautiful. Last question then, hardest one. If you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what would you see? Oh my God. That's like an impossible question. And, you know... And can I pick one of my own shows? Sure, you can. There is no wrong answer. I, you know, I think I, I think that I'd pick one of my comedies, and I this may be a strange answer, but um, perhaps Fabulation because it, it it continues to delight me in ways that surprise me. <laughs> Lovely. All right, where can we find you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at Lynn Brooklyn. Um, and you can find me on Instagram at Lynn Nottage. <laughs> Made All it right. kept it simple. Kept it simple. Check the show notes for those accounts and also for the link to Art for Justice Fund so you can get involved with that. Of course, go get your tickets to Intimate Apparel and MJ the Musical and everything in the future that Lynn is about to create because, damn, it's just good. Everything that comes out of your head is phenomenal. You can get more of me at thetheaterpodcast.com. I'm on Instagram at Twitter. Tweet, Twitter? I'm on Instagram and Twitter at theater underscore podcast. You can find more online at vpn.fm slash TTP. This has been edited by Well-Rounded Hilden Productions. And thank you to Jukebox the Ghost for the intro and outro music. Lynn Nottage, thank you so much. You are a gift to this art form. And please don't ever stop writing. It's beautiful. I love all of your work. Thank you. I so appreciate that. Make the world a little colorful. Hey, it's Leslie Udom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, 
even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.